MSW Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, March 23rd. 23 is my favorite number. And this Ooh. is episode 62. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And with me, as always, is real-life lawyer out from the dungeon, the lawyer dungeon from underneath my house, Andrew Torres. <laughs> Allison, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing really well. I got, yeah. I, I'm being, I'm being dragged by right-wing <laughs> trolls on Twitter this morning, and, I, it, and it's actually really funny fun for me <laughs> are, are you triggered yet libtard yeah Urgh. so so yeah. is 23 your favorite number is, is that a is that a michael jordan thing is that <laughs> no although when i was you know living in highland park which is a suburb of chicago mm-hmm. we're just walking around the neighborhoods going to larry lizard lounge after you know being in the military for the day and uh, there's a giant gate with a huge gold number 23 on it and i'm like <laughs> whoa what's this and everyone looks at me like uh you don't know who lives here. <laughs> it's like uh, eight feet tall, gold, 
oh. 23 on the on the gates outside of Michael Jordan's house. But no, just uh, just an old, you know, five is my favorite. It's a balanced thing. It's a justice thing. All right. So anyway. Well, that's uh, I just needed to know. So and uh, with that in mind, I, I as always, want to thank our new patrons. So big shout out, big thank you to Jack Arnett, Patricia Inslee, Niall Jones, Jackie Riley, Jake Moss, Jakob, Hypnosis Enthusiast. Hey, only use those powers for good, not evil. And Kayla L. Penny. <laughs> and if you would like to join them, you can head over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. And sign up for as little as a buck an episode. And now, on with the show. <laughs> so, Allison, if you uh, interacted with humans over the weekend, you probably heard the story of Leah Thomas. And uh, I say heard because, let's face it, the odds that you were watching the NCAA Women's 500-meter Freestyle Swimming Championships are just about zero and are definitely zero if you're complaining about them. So, uh, Because trans folks are the Republican Party's punching bag right now, if you've heard about this story, chances are you've heard it in the viral form crafted by Fox News, only, you know, with more slurs. So that story is, and this is what we are debunking, a man who couldn't hack it in men's swimming declared himself to be a woman, just like Mike Huckabee said, and shattered every known record because, you know, trans women are really men. The end. Mm. Uh, I don't know about shattering every record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but it should not surprise you to learn that no part of that entire bullshit story is true. Leah Thomas won the 500 freestyle at women's swimming and diving NCAA championships, becoming the first known transgender athlete to win an NCAA championship title. Her time, four minutes, 33.24 seconds, did not shatter any <laughs> records. In fact, although 27 different swimming records were broken at the NCAA championships this year, 27 different swimming records, Leah did not break a single one of them. Not an American U.S. Open NCAA meet or even a pool record. <laughs> so, and and just to pile on here, and, and again, uh, celebrate the accomplishment. She is way better at this than you or I. Leah's time of 4.33.24, it's not even in the top 50 in this country of all-time fastest swims in the 500-meter freestyle, right? It would not have won the event at 6 of the last nine years of competition. And in some of those years, it wouldn't even have been enough to finish second, right? Mm. Um, to, to continue to put it in context, uh, one of Leah's competitors, Brooke Ford, uh, finished fourth in 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 the race uh, this weekend, uh, had an off day. Had Brooke placed with her best historical time, that's 4.31.34, she would have beat Leah by 1.9 seconds or more than the margin a victory of 1.75 seconds that Leah won this event for. Well, she actually won by about 400,000 seconds, but we only need 11,780. <laughs> uh, so Leah isn't destroying women's records, okay? The, the other half of that slur just isn't true either, that Leah was some sort of walk-on or just wasn't very good before her transition. Some have even attached a number to it, claiming she was 462nd when on the men's team and now first. That 462nd ranking, as far as anyone can tell, is just made up. Yeah. <laughs> According to U.S. Swimming, Leah's official rankings were 12th in the 1,000-yard men's freestyle in 2018 and 12th in the same event in 2019. Uh, 12, 462. Um, yeah. Hmm. 
In other words, Leah was a standout athlete prior to her transition. And going from 12th to 1st is a pattern athletes follow all the time. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, absolutely. So just to recap, in case your Uncle Frank hits you with this one over the weekend. And by the way, um, a, a, a nice comeback when uh, Uncle Frank corners you and, and uh, you know, presents the slur is, hey, that's cool. Can you name five Olympic women swimmers? Can you name five members of the WNBA, right? Like they did all of a sudden, these folks only care about uh, women's sports when they make it a political football. But Mm -hmm. to recap, Leah Thomas didn't wash out of men's sports. She didn't pretend to be a girl and then shatter all known records. She was a world-class athlete pre-transition. She is a world-class athlete now. And trans women aren't dominating women's sports Despite the fact that trans women have been allowed to compete in the women's Olympic category since 2004, only one trans woman has qualified and she didn't medal in her event. There are lots of reasons for this. If you do the research, if you read the science, it will become obvious that, you know, the Mike Huckabee, yuck, yuck, I'm just going to call myself a girl and hang out in the women's room. That doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It doesn't give you magic special advantages in sports. Trans people do not dominate sports. Cis people dominate sports. Yes, very well said, my friend. Thank you. Uh, and in other news, we have a new court filing from the Department of Justice in the Enrique <laughs> Tario Proud Boys superseding indictment case. I'm gonna, that's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. We have a new court filing from the Department of Justice in the Enrique Tario Proud Boys superseding indictment. On March 8th, when they arrested Tario and his tidy whities and he was surprised, just as we all were, because the <laughs> DOJ is operating in very tight-lipped these days. Uh, they superseded the Proud Boys indictment to add two new defendants, Tario and Pozzola, Pozzolo, and they added new charges, a host of new charges, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstructing an official proceeding, aiding and, bed, aiding and abetting, along with assaulting or impeding an officer. So, Andrew, what, what, generally when I'm trying to find out the purpose of a filing, I read the title. What was the purpose of this filing? <laughs> so this is a motion to vacate the trial date and to exclude time under the Speedy Trial Act. You listen to last Thursday's opening arguments. If you saw the story in the news in which the DOJ rightfully admitted that uh, it had, uh, due to an inmate that was being transferred from Texas to D.C., just failed to abide by the deadlines, which is which is 30 days from arrest to indictment. That's a pretty short window. Um, and now uh, they are making sure that they have uh, dotted all their I's, crossed all their T's. Um, the initial trial was set for May, and the DOJ argues that due to a few factors, they need more time to submit discovery. Um, part of that is the government's affirmative obligation, Brady and Giglio, to, to uh, produce material that may be exculpatory to criminal defendants. And they note that two of the defendants' attorneys agree that more time is needed. And those two defendants are Tario and Pozzola. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, we definitely need more time. Of course and they there's do. there's a, f- a few things that stand out to me in this filing, asking to vacate that May trial date. The first things are called cross-discovery and global discovery. And this is <laughs> new to me. This is new to me. I mean, it makes sense. But, you know, this is the first time I've seen this in a filing. It seems generally in a single standalone case, like a guy robbed a bank. Discovery includes case-specific evidence, evidence that relates to that case, right? Case-specific discovery. But here, the DOJ says, with nearly 800 defendants, uh, we need to introduce the idea of global discovery and cross-discovery. So let's let's start with cross-discovery. Can you explain that? 
Sure. So uh, actually, let's take a, a little step back and start off with the case-specific discovery. That's defined in this filing as follows. Case-specific discovery principally has included materials obtained from the FBI's case files regarding the investigation of each defendant. Okay, mm-hmm. so that is, as you as you articulated, the evidence that they would produce based on their investigation. So of here's person. your the evidence, Enrique Tario, that, that we know about to you. you. Okay. Okay. Got it. <laughs> the DOJ then goes on to say, with regards to cross discovery, given the overlap in evidence relating to other individuals and those charged in this case, the government has made a concerted effort to produce cross discovery. That is material obtained in other cases that is potentially relevant to the defendants in this case. The volume of case specific and cross discovery provided by the government to date includes multiple terabytes of material that has been provided through dozens of productions. My God. Okay. So the government says there's several terabytes of both case specific and cross discovery in this case. Yes, that's right. And 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 we haven't begun to touch what you referenced as global discovery. <laughs> yeah, and this blows my mind. This caught yeah. my attention <laughs> in, the, in the filing. Department of Justice says global discovery is the government's ongoing production to all defense teams of voluminous data collected by the government in relation to the events of January 6th as a whole. And they contend that, quote, the data being made available through that effort far exceeds the information to which any individual defendant is entitled, but the government is nonetheless endeavoring to provide that data in light of the unprecedented nature of the events of January 6th, that is hundreds of similar crimes committed in the same place contemporaneously. And that is a lot of evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed it is. So um, here's here's the, the background that you need to, to, to think about this. I referenced it earlier. In addition to having to prove each criminal defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, one of the protections that is developed at the Supreme Court level is the requirement that uh, prosecutors turn over exculpatory evidence to the defendant, right? That is what we call Brady and Giglio material. We've talked about that a lot. You've talked about that a lot on your show. And so you want to err on the side of overproduction, right? And again, I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, not a criminal lawyer. Every prosecutor with whom I have ever dealt um, has had... Uh, pretty expansive standards for what counts as, as Brady material and sort of will agonize over, well, yeah, this is something you could use to impeach one of our witnesses. So therefore we're going to produce it to you right now. So um, that informs what is spelled out in the filing, which is to date these materials, that means the global discovery material. So to kind of put those two pieces together, if something is possibly Brady material for one of the January 6th insurrectionists, it's likely Brady material for the rest of them, mm-hmm. right? So to date, these materials include tens of thousands of hours of surveillance video, body-worn camera footage, and public source video, information and data from tens of thousands of tips provided to the FBI and local police departments, hundreds of internal investigation reports into the conduct of law enforcement on January 6, 2021, hundreds of thousands of FBI reports documenting the investigation of all subjects identified as playing a role in the breach of the Capitol, and data seized pursuant to legal process or consent from thousands of digital devices or other digital accounts of those who participated in the Capitol breach. 
Good Lord. So and add that to the terabytes of uh-huh. <laughs> case-specific and cross-discovery. So why does the government feel it necessary to provide all the global evidence to every defendant when it indicates that it actually exceeds the information to which any single defendant is entitled? And I think you, you kind of touched on this a second ago. Yeah, I've been I've been previewing this as we've been talking about it. So here's what the DOJ says, and, and they're not entirely explaining everything. So they cite the unprecedented nature of the events of 1-6 uh, and that each defendant is in a better position to determine which evidence is material to their defense. You know, so kind of the better to have and not need the need and not have. Um, the, the, the reality is if you fail to provide Brady material that is exculpatory, that's basis for overturning the conviction on appeal. Yeah, your case if, could be cooked, right? If you give them too much, then the 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 worst that's happened is you have given away something that they might not otherwise have known. Uh, and, you know, you've made it easier to represent this, these defendants at trial. Um, given that these trials are going to be slam dunk affairs, mm-hmm. that the evidence is just crystal clear. Um, it's not surprising that that's the approach that the DOJ is going to take here. They're like, ah, yeah, so there's no downside to yeah. over providing here because yeah, I, there's a little bit of a downside. Mm. You get to reveal some of your strategy and, uh, uh you know, it, it, it would not surprise me if, um, you know, <laughs> I, you heard me pause and, uh, and giggle a little bit over the, uh, documents, including electronic documents, uh, of those who participated in the Capitol breach, right? That is cooperating witnesses um well you know might there be a value towards letting oath keeper number seven know that oh by the way you know Stuart rhodes has given us this this and this and here's where you know he calls you codename aquaman you know the the (laughs) dumbest you know person on my team or whatever right like that there there can be strategic value in that as well it 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 Hmm. seems to me so interesting that, yeah, I think that that's uh, really interesting because, I mean, that's sort of, to me, indicates a little bit of confidence, a little bit of swagger uh-huh. on the part of the DOJ. Like, you should have at it. <laughs> you're, you're better to equip to look through this evidence and know what's relevant to your stupid case. Um, something else that stood out to me in this filing is the mention of an additional, of additional evidence that the Department of Justice obtained on March 8th. Uh, they said... That's when Taria was being arrested in his undies. Uh, they said it executed several other simultaneous search warrants. We know about two, Stewart mm-hmm. and Bertino, but it says several. That that's, you know, sounds like more than two, but uh, several other simultaneous search warrants, and they need time, about 60 to 90 days, even though they don't know the nature and the volume yet. They're spitballing 60 to 90 days to review all that material at the FBI as it pertains to the most recent second superseding indictment, the one that came out on March 8th. Now, and, you know, that's the one that added Tario and Pozzola and the handful of new charges I went over in the beginning. Right. But then there's a section in this filing called Third Superseding Indictment. <laughs> and it says, quote, as explained above, the government continues to investigate and identify evidence relevant to the six defendants charged in the second superseding indictment. And the government anticipates that, based in part on evidence seized on March 8th, 2022... It may seek to charge several additional defendants and or seek to add new charges. The government expects that any such superseding indictment would issue prior to May 20th of 2022. 
And close quote, that's the entire section of third superseding indictment. The reason that section stood out to me is because that's what happened with the Oath Keepers mm-hmm. and Stuart Rhodes. They superseded their obstruction and official proceeding charges with seditious conspiracy and added a defendant with that filing. And I'm wondering if that could happen here. It absolutely could. I think your radar is dead on when it comes to this. And remember, the seditious conspiracy statute requires the use of force. Yeah, and they have definitely, in their Tario filings, been talking about the force that was used, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, repeatedly by saying that even though Tario was not present, he still commanded the MOSD and told people they were going to storm the Capitol. And then while it was happening, said, stay there, sit in, and then bragged about it afterwards, saying, we did it. This this was us. Make no mistake. We did this. Right. <laughs> like, well, thanks for that evidence. <laughs> Not to mention the repeated descriptions of Dominic Pozzolo, who was just added to the second superseding indictment. He was the first to break through a window at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. That seems like force to me, or at least it seems like the DOJ is indicating that this there that force was used here. Now, here's a question for you. If they're going to include Donald in this eventually, this conspiracy we've talked about, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or obstructing an official proceeding, Donald, who was also not president at the cap, present at the Capitol that day, was also not president at the Capitol that day, <laughs> 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 was not present at the Capitol that day. Would the DOJ want to have all of this evidence reviewed to deliver as part of that global discovery in his case as well? And I know I'm speculating. I'm way out in front of my skis here. And I'm not saying he'll be charged in this third superseding indictment. That third superseding indictment to me sounds like another rung up, but not to include. Uh, but I'm wondering if that's the kind of information they would want to have to meet their discovery obligations. And it might explain, you know, ever what's taking so long to charge the tippy top of the conspiracy. I think they have to get all the get all the stuff together first. I I, I think that's exactly right in terms of your view of the plausibility of events, right? Like I, I, so specifically, I think the forthcoming third superseding indictment is probably somebody, some other link in the chain. Could it be a Roger Stone, right? I, I don't it know. It could just right? be as low as just Bertino and Stewart. These sure. Other, or these other several people that had raids conducted and executed search warrants on, on their homes. It could just include them and wrap everybody up in a in a some sort of, uh, you know, seditious conspiracy or just a superseding indictment for the charges that currently stand. Yeah, but it could go higher up, too. It, it, it could. And, and look, we are carefully watching this <laughs> to ensure and to, uh, you know, keep the pressure on at DOJ that they go up the chain as far as possible. Remember, A.G. Merrick Garland has said on multiple occasions, and, 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 and again, this is not just his policy. This is the way in which prosecutors operate, right, that you charge the overt crimes first, right, and uh, then you kind of backfill to charge the conspiracy charges, right, because it's easier to prove the overt crimes than the conspiracy crimes. Yeah, and um, you need to have all that discovery available under the Speedy Trial Act to get I, it all to them before you, you know, supersede with 
obstructing official proceeding or seditious conspiracy. Yeah, you you absolutely anticipated the second half of my answer there. Oh, just uh, no, 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 no. That people who like step on my punchlines, I step on your legal. Uh, it goes to, no, but seriously, it goes to show what what great research you've done and just how uh, on top of the story and uh, and how well you understand those those legal arguments. But but yeah, this is a short clock to be running. It's a short clock to run in an ordinary case, let alone one where you have hundreds of defendants, right? Like this is a massive complex web, right? So, yes, it is my view. I think you are exactly correct that what DOJ is waiting to do is uh, to get all of the evidence in uh, so that they can charge the Proud Boys leaders, Oath Keepers leaders. Aquaman, you know, whatever. Uh, and, 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 and the reason that they were able to initially charge those defendants earlier is because they, they singled out the folks who were there actually trespassing. Right. So it would stand to reason that, um, if you want to drag in the folks who were not there, you need to gather additional evidence that, that all, that makes total sense to me. That's not the kind of thing you can rush through a grand jury. Uh, you know, if all of a sudden you realize you're 27 days out, uh, from arrest and you don't have an indictment handed back yet right which that that, yeah. that happens so. yeah plus if you don't if you don't have if you can't get the terabytes of of uh discovery out in 30 days you could run afoul of the yep speedy trial act so that's where the whole you know what's taking so long well terabytes and terabytes and terabytes hundreds of thousands of fbi reports like thousands of tips like it's a lot and and they and they had to have all that stuff together and be able to hand it over in 30 days because of rules that protect criminal defendants rights now it, it, it seems if they intended to file a third superseding indictment by May 20th um that if and when the time comes to make a charging decision on Trump they will likely have and will want to have all of the evidence gathered and reviewed for quick global discovery and cross discovery, um, pursuant to the to that Speedy Trial Act, so that's that's sort of kind of what you know when we talk about building a case from the ground up, that seems to be clearly what's going on here. I think that's exactly right, and you know we've we've said this all along. You, <laughs> if they're going to charge Trump, and I, you know we all that's that's what we're waiting for. Um, that's a that's a thing that you don't want to get wrong. Mm. So. Yeah. I agree with you. Do you think the judge will grant this continuance since the government, it's not just the government asking for, I mean, I, I think that they would do it just for the government asking, but we have Tario and Pozzolo who also want more time. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I Look, the counter argument would be, hey, um, you know, I have a Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial and uh, the government is overwhelming us. They're dumping terabytes of information that you know, we have to sort through and it's not fair. And, and, and those, there are, don't do a I coup want, then, you know, yeah, well, I, I just want to give voice, you know, I want to, you know, steel bot the other side as much as I can. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and give voice to, there is an argument not to grant the continuance. Um, but that argument is, I think one that's really hard to make here because of the, the facts that you've described. And, and I don't think anybody thinks that the government is moving in a fashion so as to make it, uh, you know, so as to overwhelm these, uh, you know, poor, poor defense attorneys who were defending insurrectionists with 
too much information to slow them down. Um, no, that, and I that suppose just doesn't it's, seem plausible. I suppose it's like they've give, they've they're giving it in categories too. Here's your case specific shit, and then here's some cross shit, and then you know with the other six guys that you're that you fucked around with. And then here, you know, by the way, here's a global trove if you want to go through this for more for more exculpatory evidence that you, you won't find any. Good luck. But, you know, uh, they might. Who knows? But uh, here here it is. So I feel like the way that they're presenting their discovery gives the defendants more, as they said in the filing, yep. exceeding what they what they actually are have a right to see. Uh, and I think that that is uh, kind of buttoning it up from the back end, so to speak. That's right. And let me add that if I, again, not a criminal defense lawyer, but as a a lawyer who has prepared for trial on on multiple occasions, having agreed upon authenticated documents produced by opposing counsel helps you when you are setting up your pretrial motions and certainly helps you prepare for trial because you can both agree that like, you know, this body cam footage is authentic, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that that if I then have a, a, a particular piece of exculpatory evidence uh, that uh, that is from that is shot from the same angle, let's say, as the body cam, somebody else's, you know, had their cell phone on, right? Then I can now juxtapose the body cam footage that the government has introduced and and produced and says, yep, this is legit. And now I can show my own footage, you know, have it match up frame for frame and then show that extra part. And that would be, I think, really persuasive to a jury. Again, I have no idea if any of that evidence exists or not. I'm Mm -hmm. just thinking about it from a practitioner standpoint that, you know, you you have reasons to want the government to do this as well. Yeah, and and there was a little bit of a a, a roadblock for criminal defendants who was who were hoping that there was some a uh, bit of glowing exculpatory information by the for the you know for the fact that perhaps Mike Pence wasn't there, uh, wasn't in the Capitol complex during the uh, during the attack because the you know the, and this is the Cooey Griffin case right that New Mexico yep. cowboy, <laughs> um, and he his defense was hey the. Secret Service whisked Pence away to far away. And if there's no head of state on the Capitol grounds, it's no longer restricted space. So I can't have been trespassing. So they brought up a U.S. Secret Service person and said, yeah, no, we took him to a garage under the Senate side. Uh, He was at a loading dock. So and the judge today ruled Pence was on the grounds. So that takes away that from all 800 defendants who may have used that as a defense. So that was an important ruling today. And that was Trevor McFadden, Trevor McFadden, by the way, a Trump appointee from 2019. So anyway, lots of interesting stuff going down. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with the, uh, you know, the news story of the week and of the, in the, you know, the history of the United States with the first Mm -hmm. black woman nominated the Supreme court, the confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson. We'll be right back. Hello. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, welcome back. Our final story today. Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson began in the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday, March 21st, and mm, surprise, surprise, it's already ugly. Ugh. The two main lines of attack that the Republicans are teeing up are that, one, Judge Jackson's work as a public defender, and in particular, defending detainees at, detainees at Guantanamo Bay, in an amicus brief, by the way. Yep. And two, and I can't believe I'm saying this to an actual human being, the QAnon charge that she is a secret pedophile. <sighs> so, uh, yeah, ugly. Um, and, and, and by the way, I mean, this is an illustration of the total war that uh, uh, Republicans have declared on this country, right? This, this fight means nothing to them. This does not jeopardize in any way the activist right-wing mission of their Supreme Court. It replaces one liberal justice on the Supreme Court with another. Uh, we're still going to have a series of 6-3 and 5-4 rulings uh, just dismantling existing law. That's what shocks me about this, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, no, no. if they're getting nothing out of it, uh, it seems to me the Democrats are going to walk away with a whole bunch of midterm footage to show in, <laughs> to show in in uh, in um, election ads. I, let's let's hope so because um, this is really bringing out, you know, as you as you pointed out, um, the the. Uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Green level nonsense uh, coming from folks like Ted Cruz, who are hoping that this will, you know, propel him to the top of the 2024 pack, which is just so comically laughable. Um, I, I, I want before we get to the QAnon stuff, let's talk a little bit about the significance of being a public defender. But by the way, something of which there are zero public defenders, former public defenders on the Supreme Court, and this is uh, on a nine-person Supreme Court, uh, a a a perspective that I think is long overdue. Um, and I will tell you, you know, you heard me in the B segment uh, as you know somebody who is it very pro-defendant in criminal justice cases. Um, you know, you've you've heard me defend the ethics of prosecutors, which uh, I think is correct. You've heard me say that um, very, very fine lawyers go and spend time uh, as prosecutors uh, and, you know, again, then can still go out and work for justice. That's also correct. I, I, I want to say that because the flip side is true, right? That is non- Trump supporting non idiot Republicans uh, who are conservatives, who are lawyers, w will tell you if you sit in a room with them, even if they are, you know, as hardline on crime as you possibly can get, will tell you public defenders do a valuable and underappreciated and under-resourced job. And constitutionally uh, required uh, job. Constitutionally <laughs> mandated, right? You know, the, the Thomas Jefferson, you know, dating back to, you know, the, the founding, um, uh, you know, inspirational stories of, of our country, right? Like, this is the kind of thing that um, anybody who is arguing in good faith uh, would, would, I think, be, be forced to concede of... of yeah, public defenders uh, work super long hours for super low pay in a constitutionally mandated role and bringing the perspective on of somebody who has uh, represented, you know, indigent defendants, people who otherwise have tried to represent themselves um, is ordinarily the kind of thing you would welcome into a pluralistic debate over what the law means 
and how the law gets applied. And um, I'm I'm I, I, I can't wait for Judge Jackson to join the court. Yeah, me neither. And and I was particularly, mm, I don't know the adjective to use here, but uh, we'll just talk about Lindsey Graham's line of questioning. Ugh. Because he went on about the, the Gitmo detainees, the process by which the executive branch determines if they're still a danger to national security, et cetera, and uh, that she was part of an amicus brief uh, filed on behalf of, of Gitmo detainees. Um, and... That that is somehow a bad thing, and and she, you know, she didn't talk about her feelings about the case or where she her opinion stands on it. She says, "Look, I was hired to write this opinion for for someone else who had these feelings, and that was my job as as a, as a lawyer. And if you know Lindsey Graham, you'll know. Come on, man, you know if you if you if your client needs you to file a, an amicus brief about." you know, detainees at Gitmo and torture, people who've been in it, you know, 23 hours of, of not eating and being held up by their wrists, et cetera, et cetera, then you write that brief on their behalf. And it, you know, there are times, then she, you know, she said, there's a lot of times where lawyers representing defendants, whether or not they agree with the the stance that the defendant is taking or the plaintiff in the case suing, you do your best job as an attorney to represent what they want you to represent and that's she just said kept saying that over and over again and he wanted her to somehow admit that uh you know <laughs> rumsfeld and bush were war criminal torturing a-holes which they are but you know that wasn't her job in that case yeah and and look there is a line to draw here right so if i were being nominated for a federal judgeship for example um it would be fair uh to introduce into evidence every episode of opening arguments every episode of clean up on aisle 45 this is why i will never be uh, nominated <laughs> for a federal judgeship by the way um but but you would look at right a, a fair-minded person um you know would sort of look at the things that are most closely tied to the way in which i've practiced law as a guidepost for how would i practice as a judge Right. And for somebody who has been a federal judge for more than a decade and has spent a year on, you know, in the AAA team for the Supreme Court, right, the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, the best way to get a sense of what she's likely to do as a judge is to look is to look at what she's done as a judge. Mm. Going back to uh, the arguments raised in an amicus brief two decades ago, I, I think, you know, sort of shows the level of desperation because, you know, this is somebody who, you know, there there are no legitimate arguments against her as, as, uh, as a jurist. Right. It's almost like a two-year investigation that finally charges one indictment <laughs> for lying to a guy <laughs> that no one witnessed and there were no notes to and that the guy actually testified yeah. Otherwise, too. Yeah. OK. And, and 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 let me make kind of one last point here, because I, I just want to to make it a little bit more clear. And that is an amicus brief is an advocacy piece. Right. 
a, a judge's ruling, an opinion, is a neutral statement of what happened, right, and what the law is. When you write an amicus brief, you are supposed to use the strongest legally defensible language that you can. That's your job as a lawyer, right? That's what the whole zealous advocacy means. So it isn't so much. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners got it clear. It's not so much that like, eh, you're a lawyer, you're a hired gun, you can write whatever the hell you want, right? It is rather that on behalf of her client, she was required to make the strongest arguments possible and saying, yeah, I think torture could be an international war crime is very <laughs> different, which, you know, should not be a controversial opinion, but apparently no. is in the uh, Republican Party in 2022. It is very different than if she had you know, dropped a footnote in a legal opinion that You're said, right. you know, by the way, George W. Bush is a war criminal, which, you know, <laughs> I feel like I, even I, Comey agrees with me, like back off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go low. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and something else that I, I really loved today was another thing that Lindsey Graham brought up was some sort of attack hate campaign against Michelle Childs, his choice for uh the nominee and that the progressives were uh try you know coming out and funding trying to take her apart etc because of something i you know i couldn't even really follow his line of thinking because he's one to say that biden is a progressive left-wing radical but he wouldn't appoint something somebody that progressive left-wing wing radicals apparently were against i don't understand but what i found amazing was when Sheldon <laughs> Sheldon Whitehouse, I believe, oh, love uh, him. <laughs> took the microphone. He's like, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about the, let's see, the efforts by the right wing to put who they want on the court and, and uh, compare that to your, because first of all, me personally, AG, I never saw any Michelle Childs attack campaign and I am steeped in yeah. this shit. There was none. And he's like, yeah, but there was this thing. And, and he read like somebody's tweet, like one guy said something or something. I don't remember. But White House is like, OK, let's talk about the four hundred million dollars raised by this, 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 this dark money, this, this to get Coney, to get Gorsuch, to get Kavanaugh on the bench. And they're like, let's let's be a little fucking serious about the efforts we're talking about to get judges put onto the Supreme Court from the right and the left. And I thought he laid it out perfectly. And, you know, he's been. Um, you're talking about the dark money in the courts for a very long time now. This is his pet project, one of them. And I just thought it was very eloquently put and sort of put them all in their place about, you know, you know, like, please, you're going to talk about a guy's tweet that didn't like Michelle Childs and, and the main difference between rooting for someone versus raising $400 million in dark money and masking the names of the donors to get people who you want on the bench. Yeah, a, a lot to unpack there. So uh, let's let's kind of take that sequentially. Number one. Yeah, this is Princess Lindsey Graham mad that the person he floated uh, was never really taken seriously as a candidate. Well, guess what, Lindsey? You're not the president and you never will be ever. So you don't get to make Supreme Court nominees. And I'm sorry that that hurts your feelings, but that's what you get for a lifetime of being Lindsey Graham. Now. Uh, there was absolutely not. And again, uh, you know, it was clear from the outset uh, before Lindsey Graham piped up, right, that the two main choices were going to be Katanji Brown Jackson 
elevated to the D.C. Circuit as literally one of the very first things that President Biden did in 2021, a budding rock star in the party. My number one choice, you know, if we'd have done a a, a, a Supreme Court fantasy draft, I would have taken uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson number one. I would have uh, grudgingly taken, Leon, taken Leandra Kruger at number two. And then if I was third, I would have just gone home, right? Like <laughs> I wouldn't have picked Michelle Childs. That's for damn sure. So uh, there wasn't any campaign to destroy the Michelle Childs candidacy. She was, a, uh, you know, somebody that was floated briefly because there was a time uh, when uh, Joe oh, Biden... Uh, didn't John, consider um, Lindsey Graham a, an insufferable douchebag and talked to him. Sorry. And and Clyburn also. Yep. Was uh, was a favorite for South Carolina. South Carolina is, you know, could be said to be what started Joe Biden down the road to the presidency. Uh, it was Clyburn who insisted that uh, Biden promised to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, and he almost forgot during that second debate. <laughs> he threw it in there in the closing statements, um, and so you know that. No, but, you know, so that's kind of where that whole idea came from. And there were nine excruciatingly qualified candidates that he was looking at. So I do not mean to suggest based on my fantasy draft and refusal to play that there are not dozens of very, very qualified women of color. I mean, we make this point in the C segment of the show every week, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'm glad I'm, I'm to, to the extent that that could have been mischaracterized. Uh, thank you for, for jumping in on that. Um, so there was never a big Michelle Childs movement uh, to be torpedoed by left-wing sources. And as you point out, this is the way Supreme Court nominees go now because of the efforts of the right wing, by the way, and that is that there is going to be a massive uh, public expenditure by attack groups uh, funded by your usual Koch brothers, right wing sources. Uh, and to do that, uh, as we've covered on this show on multiple occasions, that means you got to gear up for that fight and you have to raise money in support of your nominee. And so the same left wing quote sources that are backing uh, uh, Judge Jackson right now would be backing Judge Childs if yeah. she were the nominee. 100%. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's just clear that this and I, I don't think that um, the you know, <laughs> so and so wants you to be on the Supreme Court. Well, you know, well, that's great. Right? Well, Graham, Graham is making up grievances so that like yep. six people who, you know, who are assholes won't be mad at him for voting for uh, anything Biden ever did. And, yep. and this is obvious because Lindsey Graham has voted to confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson, how many other times? Yep, twice. Yep. So <laughs> it won't be doing it this time. So how? What has changed in her judicial past uh, to 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 make her not qualified now? Well, uh, it's it's nothing. If, nothing. If you listen to former something that constitution- was filed twenty years ago. <laughs> how about if you listen to former constitutional law professor? And I'm not making that one up. And now Senator Josh Hawley, uh, it's because she's a secret pedophile. Um, he was a he was a professor. He's oh, like yeah. nine. I know he was a con law professor. Um, this is this is somebody who knows better, right? That, that just, like Ted Cruz, right? Josh Hawley is not just uh, you know some idiot out there. Like he is 
he he is a very carefully cultivated idiot with who who knows better. So it's like just like John Kennedy, uh, <laughs> fucking Ivy League Rhodes scholar, and right? Like, yeah, nip, nip, nip. <laughs> and he's wow. got like chaw in his cheek, <laughs> and he's like he's got a spittoon next to him in his boots. It's like fuck you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like it reminds me of the old Greg Giraldo comedy album Midlife Vices talking about G.W. Bush. He's like he was a cheerleader at, at Yale. Yale. <laughs> he went to Andover. <laughs> Rep. I'm a cowboy. He he he. I as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah. It was just like W, w went to Yale, like Yale cheerleader, you, sir. Yeah. yeah, and it was a it was it anyway. Um, so. I, I I just want to get out in front of this. We we may go into the specifics of the cases on on opening arguments, but um, Hawley's argument is uh, that there are these nine cases involving child pornography in which uh, Judge Jackson has uh, imposed sentences that are below the federal sentencing guidelines, and I, I need to help unpack that that because on the surface that statement is true. Now. So is the statement that a lot of judges have taken a downward departure on many of the January 6th defendants. <laughs> so so is so are the following facts, right? Um and this comes from the 2021 bipartisan U.S. Sentencing Commission, right? Wait, who uh, writes judge, that? Who writes that? <laughs> that is that is a bipartisan commission, right? Both Republicans and Democrats, right? From where? And um, well, they are uh, selected from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Oh, so, con- so Congress, Senate Judiciary yeah. Committee. Oh, yeah. so the people asking the questions today. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. Okay, just right. checking. Yeah. Uh, and again, Judge Jackson served on this uh, more than a decade ago, but this is long free from her influence, right? And, and again, what, you know, what they do is they get, they get together and they pick uh, jurists to serve on the committee, and then they evaluate. And the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 2021 notes that the major sentencing guideline, it is section 2G 2.2, quote, fails to distinguish adequately between more and less severe offenders of child pornography. Okay. And, quote, most courts believe 2G 2.2 is generally too severe and does not appropriately measure offender culpability in the typical non-production child pornography case. Right. So let's. Let's unpack that for a second. If you believe that we ought to punish people who produce child pornography, right? That is participate in the active rape of children more harshly than people who just have child pornography. A, that does not make you pro child pornography. And B, you would then wind up with a record rather like Judge Jackson's and rather like, as the same report notes, this is page 23, two thirds of the sitting federal bench, right? Both, you know, appointed, but whether appointed by Democrats or appointed by Republicans. In other words, federal judges typically sentence below the guidelines in 67% of cases, two out of three child pornography cases, because the guideline is written too strongly. Right. That's their belief. That is a uniform belief held by, quote, most courts, not by crazy pro pro child porn liberals. Right now. Again, that's the background base. So so you've got a situation where judges do this all the time. And yet, uh, you know, because that's going to be difficult to explain 
in the context of, you know, a, a blip on CNN, Josh Hawley is like, ah, I'm going to seize on that. Um, in the nine cases that Josh Hawley identified um, in terms of uh, having abnormally what he contended were abnormally low sentences in child pornography cases, five of those were cases in which the prosecution moved for a below guideline sentence. Right. So in other words, yeah, the, the the prosecutors bringing the case said, yep, we brought this case. We won. But as we go to apply the guidelines, we look at those and go, that's not really appropriate for the specific sentencing of this case. So the government, the prosecutors, the people who wanted these these offenders in jail said go below the guidelines and there wasn't a judge in the country when the prosecution says let's go below the guidelines who's like no forget that i'm gonna go above the guy or you know i'm gonna stick with the guideline like that's that's ridiculous so you're really looking at four cases in which uh the in which defense counsel moved uh for a departure for a downward departure uh a below guideline sentence and uh and that sentence was handed out by judge jackson and again um spoiler alert uh it is perfectly consistent with what mainstream judges do in these kinds of cases i have a question for you mm. uh if a judge ignored the prosecution's request for a downward departure would the defendant have a stronger case to have the conviction thrown out or would they have a good case for appeal absolutely say, yeah okay yeah <laughs> so, so they would walk free. They could walk free. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. You could you could come back and say, you know, that um, that, that there's yeah, I, I suppose a uh, an appellate court could just narrowly tailor relief to come back and uh, and demand that the court impose a sentence within the guidelines. That's a possibility. But mm-hmm. but yeah, like it, it, even don't think about the they could go free think about that in the you've now clogged up the courts for another couple of years right um and and you 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 don't want to do that so um yeah this is uh this is nonsense and um and it and it's truly disturbing because we we know where it comes from right it okay. is it is linked to the qAnon belief that you know democrats grind up the skulls of babies after they've raped them to eat the adrenochrome to hold back the reptile lizards i it, it's and yeah. it's gonna and and this is going to feed that conspiracy of a hundred deep state on the bench and they're all pro pet they love pedophilia and the, yep uh pizza basements and etc yep That's exactly right gross um yeah all right. Well, uh, I am. Uh, it, it, the hearings are actually taking place right now behind me in my living room, and uh, I got up to record from from watching them today. Uh, and uh, we will go back to to watching them. I'm sure as soon as we're done here, and uh, you know, stomach as much as I can when when the Republicans <laughs> are doing it. Uh, you know, because Lindsey Graham was like, the, "This is let's make sure this isn't a circus," and then he turns it into a fucking circus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you ought to not be wearing floppy red shoes and have a squeezable nose when you say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and one of those little horns. Huh? <gasps> um, it's uh, I, I, I will continue to watch, but it is it, it, it is infuriating, especially, you know, I, mm, I, I think everyone can understand um, 
everyone who's been watching the hearings, I think, knows what we're talking about. But uh, I will continue to watch them. And remember, we record this. This is actually a special week. We're recording it Tuesday morning um, uh, for release uh, uh, Wednesday, which is when you're hearing it now. Uh, patrons get it a little bit early, I think, and ad-free. So if you want to become a patron, again, for a buck an episode, as little as, you can you can add more if you want. You yeah. can do that at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. And uh, that is the show uh, for today um, because, you know, the, the Katanja Brown-Jackson is the comings and going section and she's probably going to be for the next week or two. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that's right. And and look, n- none of this is going to keep Katanji Brown-Jackson off the off the Supreme Court. Mm-mm. No. And, and that's why I don't understand why the Republicans are doing this, you know, other than to just rile up red meat for their base because they're per- trying out to run for president in 2020. Perpetual outrage machine. Yep. Uh, yeah. But I'm triggered. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Be right back. Got to make a meme about something you said five years ago. <laughs> and then something I said last week. And I, I just retweeted it like, I'm proud of these two tweets. Thanks, you guys, for uh, for show, for giving me a little bit of a, a little voice on the other side of people who might not generally listen to what, what we have to say. But Thank you for listening, Andrew. It's been great to see you. I will see you next week, my friend, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk between now and then because uh, I am uh, <laughs> I'm ex- super excited to see what happens with the 111 emails that are being reviewed in camera by Judge Clark <laughs> in the in the Eastman the John Eastman Chapman University case. And did you see that uh, uh, additional brief that Chapman University filed? Like, hey, we got guys from 2000 2001 who said it's different. For yeah. when he was oh, working oh, for Bush yeah. and, and, and I saw this was a big uh, Andrew was wrong I mean I thought the judge had sort of had enough of Eastman's shenanigans and when he petitioned to you know review fewer documents the court would be like what are you doing bro but nope uh, the the uh, the court said yeah go ahead Met him take halfway. your time mm-hmm. and then and then uh, a day later John Eastman <laughs> is gallivanting around to some you know bonehead stop the steel conference um, I that's what I thought was the most amazing. Like, hey, I, you know, I have a lot. I have a life, judge, so I can't review fifteen hundred a, a day. I a can do burgeoning law practice. Yeah, I can do seven fifty, and the judge is like, all right, a thousand instead of seven fifty in another month. You can have a thousand a day in another two weeks. Uh, I, personally, I think he's like, well, you know what? Whatever. I've read these emails. You're in a lot of fucking deep shit, dude. <laughs> but uh, we'll see what that filing is, that ruling is when it comes out, because the judge promised to tell us. Which, how many emails were going to get handed over? Which ones didn't fall under attorney client or work product privilege? Uh, and I think why, and I think why not as well. Uh, oh, so yeah, we'll, <laughs> this is gonna be, gonna be very, uh, very, uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, I think it's gonna be the way that we want it to be. Two votes, crossed fingers, and uh, let's uh, let's stay in touch, Alice. We will. Everybody, thanks so much for listening to Clean Up on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds. 
a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.